Amanda Reyes and we're hitting a sort of milestone with the trap casts. By milestone I mean I might actually be making a little headway uh, hopefully with this podcast um, uh, and I'm so happy that I'm slowly working my way through the show because uh, I do love it so much and we have two winners with this entry. I'll be discussing the first two episodes to come out in 1980. Uh, they are titled Boom and Have You Hugged Your Nurse Lately which is a great title. Um, however, you know, in the interim between recording this last episode, which I don't even remember when that was, and this one, we lost Charles Siebert, who of course plays Dr. Riverside, and uh, we also lost Jessica Walter, who plays Trapp's ex-wife, Melanie. I guess in my silly little dream world, I'd always hope Siebert would hear about this podcast and I might be able to interview him about his character and about the show. He was a real bright light for me, and... I'm not sure how to really pay tribute to him. Um, I think the loss for me was pretty awful. Uh, but on the next episode of the Trapcast, I'll be hitting one of the first big Seabird episodes. And so I'm hoping to just make it part of a celebration uh, throughout the series of uh, the Trapcast. But for now, I just want to talk a little bit about this ongoing antagonism from the critics regarding what was a bona fide hit for CBS. As I mentioned in the previous episode of the Trapcast, uh, if anybody can remember that, uh, the critics were bemoaning the series, and in a few years, they will argue that Trapper John's success, despite its quote-unquote trashiness, makes the struggles of uh, St. Elsewhere uh, feel really frustrating. Um, you know, I'm not going to debate the merits of that show. It's an amazing show. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with inviting audiences into a lighter hospital series. I might call that balance, you know. I, I don't want to diminish anything Trapper John related, but I don't think every series needs to have a sharper edge or needs to bring home dozens of Emmys to be a good show. It can create its own universe and, you know, I'm not sure, but maybe entertain its audience. And, you know, certainly Trapper John was doing something right because viewers were still returning week after week and did so for many years. But, you know, even a few stodgy critics were uh, opening up to the charms of the crew at San Francisco Memorial. In fact, a television critic named uh, Bonetta, I hope I said that right, Bonetta Martin, printed a retraction to her original negative review of the series, uh, which she wrote for the McLean County News, uh, which is located in Calhoun, Kentucky. So she wrote this. The headline was, I Was Wrong, by Bonetta Martin. She says, quote, Greetings. This is 1980, right? 
a time for a new beginning for many of us because a new year starts off with a clean slate. We all make those yearly resolutions to change and to try to make amends for wrongs that were done during the 79 year. That's what I'm doing in today's column. I made a mistake criticizing a show and am now changing my mind. After all, even critics have the right to change their mind. When I first reviewed Trapper John MD way back when I was young and foolish, I didn't give it a very high overall rating. What can I say? After the first couple of viewings, I didn't like it at all. Pernell Roberts without a horse was like America without apple pie, and the first scripts of the show were just the pits. But as they say that everything improves with age, so did Trapper John MD, which is on Sunday nights at 9 p.m. on CBS. We all know the story behind the show. The fictional character from MASH is practicing medicine 25 years after Korea in a big hospital where he is a chief of staff. Everything was fine until he hired a rebellious young doctor by the name of G. Gonzo Gates. It's actually Alonzo Gonzo, isn't it? Um, he reminds Trapper John of himself in his younger days when he was more willing to go out and find some trouble to get in. Now not only does he find the trouble, but he has to help keep Gonzo out of it as well. This show has greatly improved over the first and second airings, and Pernell Roberts does not need a horse to hold down a series. And I admit right now that yes, I could have made a mistake on first judgments. I have grown to enjoy this show, and the scripts have improved greatly. Roberts and Gregory Harrison, who plays Gonzo, are joined in the cast by Charles Siebert as Dr. Riverside, Mary McCarty as Starch, and Christopher Norris as Ripples. Trapper John M.D. is not a bad show to watch. In fact, you might even say it was good. It just took a little time to get used to it, end quote. So very nice, Bonetta. I forgive everything you said earlier. And I do think that these two particular episodes that I'll be discussing are a pretty good example of what made the series so good on its own terms. So let's get started. Boom originally aired on January 6, 1980, and it kind of rolls its A and B story together into a really great little episode about the hospital facing a series of bomb threats over one long night. The episode opens with a young woman being brought into emergency. Her name is Annie, and she's a cop. She's also played by the wonderful Kathleen Lloyd, who I guess I know best as either the recurring character of Carol on Magnum P.I. or as Nev Campbell's mom in the mid-1990s movie The Craft. But I mean, she was in everything from the car to Adam 12 to the rare ABC Wide World Mystery episode Sorority Kill. And of course, Murder, She Wrote, because everybody was on that. Um, I believe she's in at least two other episodes of Trapper John, playing different characters. Here she's a female police officer working in a male-dominated world of crime fighting. Um, the first person to take notice of that is, of course, Brancusi, who openly admires Annie and all the crap that she has to put up with. Traffic accidents, Doc. Abrasions, contusions, and knees all banged up, and it looks like possible internal injuries. Don't listen to him. I feel terrific. You'll be the judge of that young lady. What's her name? Annie Olansky. And vital signs? Uh, pressure's 116 over 80, pulse is 84. Well, that's not at all bad. We'll take good care of you, Ms. Olansky. Officer Olansky. A police officer. Do you mind, Miss Brancusi, if we take the patient inside? I'll be in in a moment to examine. Yes, sir. Thank you. Believe me, I know what it's like to try and prove yourself as an individual in a masculine world. 
I bet you had an awful time. Nah, it was easy. I'm a lot smarter than those guys. And, you know, I'd like to talk about how this moment in the episode parallels Brancusi's own struggles, and I will get to that here in a second. Uh, but for now, the main story begins with Trapper celebrating his 10th anniversary at San Francisco Memorial. He receives a bomb threat under the guise of a congratulations card. Uh, Trap calls in the police, and we're introduced to Sykes, who is played by the absolutely wonderful Robert Hooks. This man has an incredible career, and we will get to that. But suffice to say, it's likely you've seen him in a ton of stuff, and you've probably loved him in everything you've seen him in, too. So Sykes runs the bomb department for the police, and he's brought along a couple of men to help figure out if there's actually a bomb, um, where the said bomb might be, and why the bomber has targeted Trapper. Why me? I don't know why, but he makes the point of mentioning you in this note, and you're the one he sent it to. Tobias, get the lab to work on that right away. Yes, sir. Don't you think it's about time we started evacuating the premises, Sergeant? We'll get to that. When? We've got over a thousand patients in this building and at least 400 employees. There are two kinds of bombers, Mr. Slocum. One is a terrorist. He doesn't bother to send you warning notes. He just claims credit for the results. We're dealing with the other kind, kind who likes to prolong the agony. That's why he tells you about it, so he can watch you squirm. Why is he picking on Trapper? Extortion, maybe. You'll probably get another note asking for something outrageous, or it might be just plain revenge. Annie will end up helping Gonzo concoct a sort of con to root out the madman, and of course it works. But who is the bad guy, and why is he so mad at Trap in the hospital? McIntyre. That's right. You arrested the wrong man. Uh, excuse me, would you mind speaking up? I'm, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. The bomb goes off on schedule at midnight. And this is no hoax. There's a lot going on in this episode. So to begin, it's really fast-paced and somewhat suspenseful. There's uh, fake bombs aplenty, and the con kind of is really well handled. Um, without cluing in the audience, we see cops nail Jackpot as he's fixing some of the mechanical equipment in the x-ray room. He confesses to the crime. Police officers, hold it right there. Hey, hey, what are you guys doing? Over here. Yeah. I was just fixing the view box. So in between his uh, apprehension and the confession, I found myself getting really ticked off. Uh, I was like, why is this the first episode we really get to see Jackpot, the only black cast member, being accused of a crime? And I felt like the story was falling back on a stereotype. Um, but it also occurred to me that in that way, I think the show was turning the stereotype on its ear by eliciting that type of reaction from the audience. Um, meaning, all too often, the person of color is instantly pegged as the bad guy. And we know this not to be true, particularly with Jackpot. And we get mad. So then I ended up kind of loving this part of the storyline because of that. I thought it was really clever. Um, and that just means I need more Jackpot on the show. And soon, please. But the other thing the story does is it positions Annie alongside Brancusi to show the inherent misogyny in both fields of law enforcement and medicine. As Annie is pulled out of the ambulance, Brancusi tries talking to her, only to be cut off by Riverside. And we can see both women have kind of a tough road when it comes to respect in their workplaces. Well, I still say it's a dumb idea. I mean, the entire hospital sees Jackpot carted off the jail. I mean, how's he going to explain that? Once the case is settled, he won't have to explain it. McIntyre, if I didn't think it would work, I wouldn't have gone along with it. How'd you come up with it anyway? Well, I was talking to Annie Olansky, and she's... Olansky? Oh, no. What's the matter? She's a good cop. She's a problem. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. First of all, she's a woman. Secondly, she's beautiful. And finally, she's smart. Do you realize what a combination like that would do to a police department? 
Sykes notes that Annie is a lethal combination of beauty and intelligence and that the men she works with just don't like it. And, you know, I have very mixed feelings about that uh, because, yes, I would agree that beauty and brains might be an issue in a mostly male-centric field. But then I wondered, why is that? But in 1980 and still today, it's a problem many women face. Uh, and so it was important to address that, I think. And they did it really well in this episode. But, you know, it's still not the perfect comment on sexism. And uh, I think they could have fleshed it out uh, in this particular subplot. But I did enjoy where it was going. And I see tons of potential to maybe have it revisited later in the series. And I hope that they do that. But as I mentioned in the last episode, Don Brinkley was writing most of the scripts. Um, and at this point with Boom, he's coming off the two less satisfying kid-centric entries, The Surrogate and Whose Little Hero Are You?, Brinkley seems to be pushing aside um, the general family dynamics of so many of the previous episodes and looking at other issues along the cultural landscape of that beautiful year we call 1980. Much appreciated, Don. Much appreciated. And, you know, bomb threats are kind of a funny thing. We're all pretty familiar with the idea of them, but I'm not sure I know about a lot of bomb threats that have become actual bombings. Plantation police have given the all clear at Plantation General Hospital. They have responded there to a, because of a bomb threat earlier this evening. They're now saying everything is okay, but had not given details about the threat. I did a random newspaper archive search for bomb threats in hospitals in the 1970s and saw that they seemed to be quite prevalent then. In 1974, the Austin American Statesman published a list of calls that came into a fire station over a 24-hour period in the city of Austin, which is where I live, by the way, and I counted six bomb threats, three of which were called into different hospitals. Nothing was found on any of the premises. And another news article I found from 1971 reported that an Idaho Falls hospital had to evacuate the entire building, which required moving over a thousand people. Uh, from employees to babies to people recovering from surgery, and no bomb was, of course, found. So there's a myriad of reasons someone might call in a threat, and I would imagine our first thought would be it must be politically motivated. But Brinkley, being a more sensitive writer, makes this one a matter of the heart. We come to find out that one of the bomb specialists, who is named uh, Mackie, and who's played by the great Bird de Benning, um, he's grieving over the loss of his wife. She was dying of cancer, and Trapp performed an operation on her where she died on the table. Despite the fact that she was terminal, Mackie blames Trapper for her death. Why'd you hide it, Mackie? Makes you feel kind of helpless, doesn't it? Now you know how I felt six months ago. There's a North Beach general with a bullet in my leg, wounded on duty. Millie was here. Millie? Yeah, Millie and I were going to get married. While I was at North Beach, she got sick. We brought her here. McIntyre operated. She just got worse and worse. Every day they told me how sick she was. And all I could do was lie on that side of town, pray, or swear. Help us. Just help us. And one day they told me she was dead. So this storyline reminded me of an early 1970s TV movie called Visions, which starred Monty Markham, who appeared in the Trapper John episode Love is a Three-Way Street. Um, he was the character Beaumont. 
envisions uh, he's a college professor who forms a psychic connection to a mad bomber. And the bomber has similar motivations uh, like Mackie's. And um, it's a movie I highly recommend, by the way. Um, And I may or may not be covering it by the time this episode comes out. Not sure yet. So I don't know that either this episode or Visions uh, gives these motivations a lot of emotional weight in terms of how it plays in the episode, but I thought it was a nice touch for Brinkley to make it about grief and loss rather than radical ideologies, which we already saw in License to Kill. Um, and uh, I feel that this episode handled its story uh, with the right beats and with some thought. But before I leave this episode behind, I wanted to go back to Robert Hooks, who plays Sykes. Hooks was born in Washington, D.C. and would end up uh, founding three black theater companies, including the noted Negro Ensemble Company. His love for acting began at the age of nine when he performed in a school production of The Pirates of Penzance. This led him to Broadway, where he appeared in A Raisin in the Sun and would eventually land a role on the TV series NYPD from 1967. This coming weekend, it's NYPD. This 1960s police drama was inspired by true crime stories and featured guest appearances by legendary actors from early on in their careers. See Al Pacino, James Earl Jones, Martin Sheen, and more. Now that made him the first black lead in a TV show. The other two leads were Frank Converse and Jack Warden. And he would go on to have a really impressive run as a guest star on many, many episodes on television, including Eddie Capra Mysteries, The White Shadow, Quincy, WKRP, Dynasty, TJ Hooker, so many more. And his son is Kevin Hooks, who's a noted TV director and an actor in his own rights. Robert Hooks retired in uh, 2011, terribly missed. So this is also the first of several episodes Seymour Robbie directed for the series. And I really like Boom because it's tense and it's engaging, and I find the series is beginning to find more solid stories. But as I said earlier, we need more Jackpot. Um, But for now, I'll have to deal with a little more Brancusi, who gets the spotlight in the second episode I'll be discussing. So we're walking into 1980 looking pretty good with these two episodes of Trapper John. Have You Hugged Your Nurse Lately is easily one of my favorite of the episodes I've covered thus far uh, because we're getting to know a side character a little bit better. This entry concentrates on Nurse Brancusi and we're giving a very nice glimpse into how talented Christopher Norris really is. Also, Starch gets the B story and, you know, I'm starting to fall in love with everyone. Um... Also, it's a good solid entry um, and the guest actors are great. There's chemistry between everyone. And while it's light as a feather, it's also a really wonderful way to spend an hour. So let's get to this one. Have You Hugged Your Nurse Lately originally aired on January 13th, 1980. And it starts off at a marathon race. Don't worry about that shoe. Medicare will cover it. Hey, gone. Someone will be right with you. I parted this one there. He's not a jogger, he's a photographer. He was shooting the run when he was hit by a TV mobile unit. Anything broken? Yeah, my tripod, three places. Shoulder might be separated. So there's going to be a later episode that also features a marathon, which I remember really enjoying. Um, Here, though, uh, the marathon is just a way to give the emergency room some excitement and commotion. 
During the race, a photojournalist uh, of some kind um, ends up getting hit by a car that backs over him. Um, this moment is edited in a really haphazard kind of way, so it's a little jarring to see. Uh, but it gets the photographer into Memorial, where uh, a bunch of people from the race are being treated. Uh, he's semi-conscious, and it would appear he's only dislocated his shoulder. Gonzo asks Brancusi to get some morphine for the patient, but she's sort of off in this dream world and isn't paying as much attention to her job as she should. Earth to Gloria. What's this? Oh, uh... Ten milligrams of morphine. I'm sorry, doctor. And don't forget the syringe. Mm. What's with ripples? Bad heart. She broke up with a boyfriend. <laughs> Somebody broke up with that? <laughs> we find out she's just broken up with her boyfriend, and the photojournalist, who is named uh, Matt Pettit, and who is played by the admittedly dreamy Steve Marichuk, can't believe anyone would ever leave that angel of mercy. Speed it up, Gloria. I was just looking Look, I know you've got some problems, but so have we. Now, if you're going to get depressed, do it on your own time, all right? I'm sorry, doctor. Mr. Pettit, uh, we're going to send you over to X-ray, and we'll get some films of your shoulder, and then we'll make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. Give him the shot and get him admitted. Hey, Gloria. Cheer up. After all, things could be worse, you know? Apparently, though, Brancusi has been really falling down at the job, and uh, Trapper calls in Gonzo to figure out what they should do. Gonzo decides to play matchmaker and takes her off the ER and puts her on the regular floors so she can help those who aren't in immediate need of medical attention, particularly Matt. Another bad day, huh? I'm having a fine day, thank you. What's the matter, sweetheart? Uh, afraid of my little dope on you? It's terrible, Bogart. Oh, that was a terrific soapy Weimer. Not too many people can do him. True. Are you always in such a good mood? Why shouldn't I be? I've got a separate shoulder, broken camera, two bum legs, and a gorgeous angel of mercy who can hardly wait to shut me up. What more can a guy ask for? I'll be right back. Uh, keep that under your tongue. Hmm? Hey, we ought to do this more often. At the same time, Starch, who I'm not sure I've mentioned is Trapper Scrub Nurse, is taking lunch orders for Gonzo and Trapper, and she and Trapper end up having a small war of words. Please, I will accept my own party invitations. Just remember, you are my scrub nurse. You are not my secretary. You are not my mother. Well... Thank you. Boy, you try to be Mr. Nice Guy, and where does it get you? you? You try to work around a man's faults, and where does it get you? Fault? Aha. Uh -huh. Now it comes out at last. I have a fault. No, Trapper. I didn't say fault. I said faults. Such as? Let me count the ways. For openers, you are predictable in everything you say, everything you do, day after day, year after year. You're a man who's in a great, big, predictable rut. Well, then, why don't you just run around this old hospital and find another carefree, madcap, unpredictable doctor? <laughs> thank you, thank you, I will. She walks out on him and ends up working for Riverside. Now, that's our B story, which is intertwined with Riverside putting together a party for his father. I'll get into that in a second. While Matt is recuperating, he puts some major moves on Brancusi. And indeed, she's taken in by his abrasive but charming and witty manner. 
The two grow quite close, but aside from being handsome and funny, Matt also has got this major chip on his shoulder, possibly because he was in an accident a little over a year ago and is now in a wheelchair. I'd like to keep him here a little longer, run some tests. What, for a separated shoulder? His legs. You're going to tell me you can make him walk again? No. I'm not bucking for wonder, Doctor, but I was examining him this morning and he's got some movement in his legs. Now, it's a hunch, but I think his condition might be operable. So you know about your hunch? Not yet. Well, let me tell you something, pal. That is a very complicated and a very delicate piece of surgery. And you raise his hopes and it doesn't work. You're going to put him through a lot of hell. Gonzo takes a special interest in Matt's paralysis and thinks he can help him get back on his feet. But this is one caustic dude, and while he accepts the procedure at first, he then decides not to go forward with it. Brancusi wants to encourage Matt to have an operation, which will likely help him, but she also wants to be supportive of Matt's desire to not have the procedure. So she goes back and forth on it, uh, but it all may be for naught when she stumbles on someone who's come to visit Matt one night. This woman is told only relatives are allowed to see him, and of course, she's totally a relative, and I know you see this one coming. She's Matt's wife. Matthew Pettit. Sorry, visiting hours are over. No visitors at all? Those are the rules. Just members of the immediate family can visit after hours. I am immediate family. I'm his wife. And then there's a commercial break. Friday on The Incredible Hulk. Welcome to a slam, baby. Banner is sentenced to a hard labor camp, and only the Hulk can keep him alive. Then Boss Hogg is bribed by an underworld boss, and those do-gooder dukes get marked for murder. He just gave us the kiss of death. And on Dallas. Now I do, Danny. JR and Jock set aside their differences to help Miss Ellie fight for her family and her life. Exciting drama, Friday starting at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. When we return, we find out that uh, Miss Rosalind Pettit, who is played by Elizabeth Halliday, left Matt because she couldn't figure out a way to support his needs, which sounds very familiar at this point. At first, she refused to cater to his every whim because she didn't want him to feel she was there out of pity, but he rejected that. So she ended up overcompensating with trying to be there completely for whatever he wanted, but he rejects that too. Worst of all, he rejected an earlier recommendation for surgery and Rosalind decides that she just can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves and she left. Matt tells Brancusi that the two are separated, but manages to leave everything out about why she left. Ultimately, though, Brancusi realizes that Matt must first come to terms with what has happened to both his injury and his marriage before she can consider anything further. And as it turns out, Matt does indeed still love Rosalind. So Gloria, that's Brancusi's first name, by the way, has to learn the valuable lesson of letting go. You know, you were real lucky to find me. I was a perfect sucker for you, Routine. Fell for everything. Guilty, Your Honor. Maybe we were both a little guilty for using each other. Maybe it seemed like a great solution to both our problems. But it's not going to work. It's too late for you and me, Matthew, but if you're lucky just might not be too late for you and your wife. I love the way Have You Hugged Your Nurse Today moves along, and I love the choices Brancusi makes, not just for herself, but also for Matt and for a woman she doesn't even know. It says a lot about the character, and I find that I admire Brancusi, even though I wish things had turned out better for her. 
Starch's story sort of comes to the opposite conclusion. Working as Riverside's nurse, um, she ends up being less of a caregiver and more of a social secretary. Meanwhile, Trapp's new scrub nurse is Dottie, played by the amazing Barbara Kaysen, who makes a few appearances on the series. She's amazing. Anyway, she's overly excited to be working with Trapp and is driving him nuts. I just thought I'd add a few touches here and there, make it be more like home. Silly goose. I am I am your new scrub nurse. I'm Dorothy Pitt, but you can call me Dottie. Oh, I can't tell you how excited I was when I heard that you needed a new nurse. I just scurried down here as fast as my feet would take me. Well, I I had a wonderful time doing this. I I, I had fun doing this. Uh, after all, Satan does find uh, mischief for idle hands. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes? Is this your wife? Ex. Oh. I'll be right there. We have an emergency in OR. An emergency? Oh, what a treat. Oh, oh what an unexpected surprise. Yeah, for me too, Miss Pitts. Dottie? Dottie. And of course, Riverside is taking Starch to the edge of sanity in his own delightful way. Um, and as you may have guessed, Starch ends up going back to Trap and the two make nice again, but not before Riverside shindig completely bombs. I mean, Starch set it up just right, but Riverside's dad, no show. At some point, we'll come to meet Riverside's pop in person, but in these first few seasons, I believe Riverside Sr. is this sort of legend who is often spoken about but never seen. And I know they do some great visual gags with this, and I'm really looking forward to those episodes. But for now, everything has been set right at San Francisco Memorial, and despite a little heartbreak, I think everything ends just as it should. So Steve Marichek only made a handful of on-screen appearances in his career, including an episode of Lou Grant titled Victims, but I know him best as the hunky lead in Piranha 2 The Spawning. He's so handsome, and he has a great presence. So along with Lance Hyrickson, the two actually got some warm notice for Piranha 2, even though the film was mostly getting bad reviews, uh, and his last role came in 1985. Elizabeth Halliday, who plays Matt's wife, has a similar filmography. She only appeared in a handful of things, and like Steve, she was featured in an episode of Lou Grant. Her episode is titled Venice. Her last on-screen appearance was in 1981 in an episode of the anthology series Darkroom, which is a show I love. Uh, she has a theater background, and the earliest role I could find for her was in 1975. She was in a production of the Great American Fourth of July Parade, which was staged at the Carnegie Music Hall in Pittsburgh. She appeared alongside George Grizzard, Melvin Douglas, and John Hausman. Nothing to sneeze out there. That's a pretty cool cast. Have You Hugged Your Nurse Today was directed by Ralph Levy. I think uh, the director is most known for his work in the classic era of television. He directed a huge chunk, if not all, of the George Burns and Gracie Allen show, as well as episodes of I Love Lucy and Green Acres. I think Levy's background on comedy could be readily seen in this episode. There's some wonderful comic timing as Matt chases Gloria around the hospital, and the clever romantic delivery is a highlight for me. And I wanted to make a brief comment on the romance in the storyline. Thus far, we haven't really seen much in the way of romance on the show. Gonzo is just a hound dog, and most of the romantic hijinks come from Trap and Melanie, who have a real cute moment together at the end of Love is a Three-Way Street. 
But have you hugged your nurse today? Uh, I felt was really refreshing and it was fun to see the two kinds of love displayed in this episode. First, we've got Gloria and Matt who are definitely attracted to each other and definitely making me a little swoony, just a little. We've also got a showing of love between Starch and Trapper, two co-workers who admire and respect each other and who are also loyal friends. This is truly a feel-good episode and I loved it. Have You Hugged Your Nurse Today was written by the female writing team named uh, Deborah Zoe Dawson and Victoria Johns. They would actually go on to become producers on Trapper John, and I'm so happy they did. Today's trap fact. Did you know that Pernell Roberts, who was a health nut, kept a 50 square foot vegetable garden next to his dressing room? Next on Trapper John. The next trap cast will cover the episodes of Missionary's Downfall and Warning, I May Be Hazardous to Your Health. And of course, I'm a big fan of the latter entry because it's all about Dr. Riverside and I cannot wait to talk about it. See you then. (laughs) 